You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Be the Bridge community. This is Latasha Morrison, um, CEO and founder of Be the Bridge. And so I'm so glad that you guys are here. As I always say, I am so excited to have this guest here on the Be the Bridge podcast. I, some of you may have followed him. You may have seen him on, um, you know, Kelly Clarkson's show on the Today Show. You may have read about him in the newspaper. You know, I'm, I'm prepping you right now. This is like somebody that's doing some great work and um, the news media has um, has lifted up the work that he's doing um, here in the Atlanta community. I have uh, Mr. Terrence Lester, but my brother <laughs> just got his PhD, so we're going to put some respect on his name. So <laughs> I have for you Dr. Terrence Lester uh, from Love Beyond Walls. He is a storyteller, a public scholar, um, speaker, community activist, and the author and the founder and director of um, Love Beyond Walls, a nonprofit organization focused on raising um, poverty and homelessness awareness and community mobilization. Um, He holds an associate degree in media production, a BA in pastoral leadership, a master of education in counseling, and a master of arts in theological story studies. And he has recently, like I said, earned his PhD. So that is why he is a public scholar. And we are so happy to have him with us. He is married to his lovely wife, um, Cecilia Lester, and they have two amazing um, children. And actually, we'll talk a little bit about, he just signed the deal to write a children's book with his daughter. So he's going to tell us a little bit about that. So not only is he writing um, um, things for academics, but he's also writing things for children, books for children. So we are so excited. And um, the work that you're doing, I just want to hear from you. I just read your bio. I know there's a lot that I left out. We can't put everything in your bio. Yeah. How did... How did you get here, Terrence? How did you get here? Like, because I, I know a little bit of your story. Yeah. I want our audience to know you and to become familiar with your work. I want them to buy your books. I want them to follow you on Instagram. Um, you have been inspiring to me, you know. Oh, wow. Um, Thank you. You never know who who's watching, but um, just seeing the work that you do. Um, we're all called... Um, you know, have different purposes and called in different ways. And I love the way that God is using you and your calling. And um, just tell us, tell our community um, a little bit about who Dr. Terrence Lester is. 
Yeah. Well, firstly, Latasha, thank you so much for having me on uh, Be The Bridge podcast. Uh, deeply honored to know you and follow you and have been equally inspired by you as well. Um, who is Terrence? So <laughs> I am uh, a husband, a father, a son, a grandson, uh, uncle, um, you know, a father. I, I'm just a, a fun, loving uh, person who loves to laugh and just enjoy life. I'm uh, actually from Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here my entire life. Wow. And I would have to say, Latasha, like I never chose mm. uh, this path. I, I feel that God pursued me mm. in a way and allowed me to overcome a lot of my struggles uh, in my youth and kind of prepared my heart to serve those who are invisible, who've been marginalized and have been pushed aside in society. I remember as early as 16 years old, you know, standing on a street corner, I just run away from home and I'm begging for change. Mm. Uh, I remember one particular night I was going to sleep in a park um, because the social context in my home was so dysfunctional. I felt safer outside. And so mm -hmm. I had guys walking in and out of the gas station. And luckily this this man uh, came over to me and he looked at me with suspicion and he says, what on earth are you doing out here so late? Shouldn't you be uh, preparing for school? And I asked him for change because there was no cell phones. I had to use mm -hmm. the payphone, and he threw two quarters at me. Mm -hmm. uh, one landed in my hand, the other on the ground. And I used those quarters to call one of my friends. His name was Eric. Eric had a father named Mr. Moore. And Mr. Moore was the type of person that loved his family. He was a black man. He sat around the table. He pastored a church. He was very involved in the community. And he was the only person that came to mind that I would feel safe opening up to. And so I called E and I said, E, do you think your parents would allow me to come over to your house? Because I don't know where I'm going to uh, get food tonight and I'm, I'll be sleeping in a park. Mm. And I still remember uh, Eric's footsteps across the floor and him coming back to the phone uh, to tell me to come on over. You know, my family loves you. I remember driving the, this this raggedy car that I had saved up to purchase over to his house. And Mr. Moore was walking down the driveway with a hot dog in one hand and a soccer ball in the other. And he told me to roll down the window. He was the first black man that I ever felt safe looking at him in his eyes. And I, I looked at him in his eyes and he says, look at me. And he taps me on the chest and he says, um, one day you're going to be a leader. And I'm questioning like, how am I going to be a leader, man? Like I, I don't have a relationship with my father there. I grew up around violence. Uh, teachers in school misjudged me, labeled me because they don't understand. I was sleeping in the park and while I'm falling asleep in class, you know, and um, he hands me the soccer ball and he says, you're just like the soccer ball. You've been kicked around. Mm. And I say, what do you mean? He says, the soccer ball is placed in, an environment it didn't ask to be in, in between two teams. Um, and just like me and you, sometimes we're born into families in, in between parents that we didn't ask to be in. But you're like the soccer ball and you've been kicked around. But he says, you want to know how the soccer ball survives all of the kicks? He says, because of what's on the inside. 
Mr. Moore uh, talked to me about my purpose and goals and uh, thinking beyond kind of like uh, the historical trappings of the social location I was emerging from because there was a lot of concentrated poverty. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah. And um, he encouraged me to marry my wife, um, to pursue college, uh, to overcome dropping out of high school um, from being hopeless. He shared his faith with me. And when Mr. Moore passed away, I was just starting the organization Love Beyond Walls that he encouraged me to start because he said one day that I would use my story uh, to reach people who were in the same uh, position that I was in. And I'll never forget him just like encouraging me to follow the Lord after I gave my life to Christ um, to do this type of work. And so that's a little bit about who I am. I come from a, a you know, the struggle it's not like something I'm doing because I want accolades or I'm trying to like amass an online following. Like I've lived this. I went from being a high school dropout to being in gangs uh, to almost facing 15 years in prison to a PhD. Um, and that's a testament not to myself, but to the power of God at work in my life. Man, like, and this is why who just hearing your story it, it it makes me emotional because i i i've i've heard this story and we've interviewed people where like if god didn't intervene mm. you know and i think you know that's why we are here doing the work that we're doing and where we're reaching back like you're reaching back and you're in love beyond walls because you were invisible to mm. many people yes and um, God intervened with a person of peace. Mm. And so those are the same things that, you know, you're developing. Those are the things that we're trying to magnify here, where it's not just about if there wasn't for grace and mercy, sometimes, you know, um, in the court system, mm. the things that you have produced because you were given a second chance, or you were given an opportunity that, you know, students that we know now, they're on the brink of dropping out or maybe they've made some bad decisions. Th those bad decisions are not the things that will define the rest of their life, you know. Mm. But if we were more about um, restoration than retribution, you know, mm. or punitive um, 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 punishment, I think we would see a lot more Terrences and so many others, you know, in that long list. And um, because we we can't help the families that we're um, that we're brought into, um, you know, our stories are different. But I also had, you know, people of peace around me to kind of put guardrails up, yes, kind of kind of pray over me to call those things that were not as though they were in my life. And um, mm. that's why I'm here today. And I, and I think about your book, I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People. And, you know, I'm thinking about um, the man throwing the money at you, you mm. know, um, grateful that he gave you the money. Yes. In fact, not having the, the decency and giving you your God-given dignity to hand you the money. It's like even little things like that. Yeah. Um, so you 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 started um, Love Beyond Walls. Um, 
I saw a lot. It was amazing to see some of you guys <laughs> while we were at home um, during the pandemic. Um, Terrence was in the streets, like really creating um, sanitary um ways that um, people who were houseless can be protected. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your organization um, your organization does here, not just in Atlanta, but I know you do work beyond, and then some of the work that you guys did um, during the pandemic that really gave you a national spotlight? Yeah. Uh, I think you raise a really great point, mm -hmm. uh, Latasha, about this power of seeing people. Mm -hmm. Uh, seeing people beyond uh, their circumstance, yes. not defining people by the brevity of a moment, but seeing the worth and value that they possess that is intrinsic, that was placed there uh, by Almighty God. And we've tried to model that in our the context of our organization uh, through community. I know Be the Bridge is about building community yes. and restoring dignity and hope. Uh, and the sense of togetherness through the power of coming together. And that's what we try to do at Love Beyond Walls when we um, bring people to crowd love individuals who have been pushed aside or marginalized or not given access to uh, running water, right? Uh, I know you mentioned the pandemic. Early on in the pandemic, I, I remember uh, this guy named Dimitri coming into our center saying that he thinks that he's going to pass away because he had nowhere to wash, wash his hands. Mm. And while, you know, people were at home complaining about toilet paper and paper towels and uh, having to sit on the couch to watch TV, there are a population of people who had been dealing with social distancing long before that term was coined uh, during the social distancing uh, uh, part of the pandemic. And so, we started placing hand washing stations and uh, portable showers in areas uh, that would help protect this population. We started with 15 in Atlanta, and now we have hand washing stations in a, over 100 cities around the country, um, uh, just providing dignity through basic uh, necessity of soap and water. But greater than that, we've been uh, leading the charge in uh, narrative justice. What does it mean to reclaim uh, the narratives that have been socially constructed uh, against this population, right? Where does criminality come from? Helping to unpack that, you know, many different ways can land you in the state of homelessness. And there are many different people who are only one paycheck away from experiencing this fight. And so what does it mean to provide uh, temporary housing for a family that's living out of a car or provide showers uh, because families or individuals who are living on the streets don't have access to showers or, um, you know, uh, providing grooming services where people can come and get the, their hair cut or, 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 you know, get a clean shave or have their hair done in a way that makes them presentable for a job. You know, I'll never forget Tyrus telling me, you know, uh, sometimes when he's tried to go apply for a job, that people smell this stench and he's embarrassed of himself uh, to even walk in a facility. How do we restore dignity just by yeah. doing as Jesus did, washing feet? Something yeah. very tangible and basic has so much restorative power because not it's not just about doing these charitable things. Mm -hmm. It's about building relationships. Yeah. It's about saying, brother, sister, 
uh, I'm with you in the fight and I'm standing in solidarity with you. And so uh, we've helped people get access to identification cards, reunite with family members, all this type of restorative work, because there are a group of people in, in this world that feel forgotten. Mm-hmm. And how dare I, having experienced the grace of God like you've uh, uh, shared earlier, not pass along that same love and support to uh, my neighbor. Yeah. And I think, you know, in our in our Christian world, this is we are very familiar with this. We are very familiar with the charity work, especially as it relates to missions. Um, And it's very easy for us to go to another country and have compassion and have mercy and lead with humility and listen and learn and lean into those things. It's like we're accustomed to doing that. But when it's right down the street from our home, you know, when it's, you know, embarking upon our community, um, when we're seeing the tits and the different things that's happening, um, we're not really trying to get underneath why is this happening, you know? And some of the policies that um, create this type of poverty and circumstance and um, lack of um, mental health facilities and, and care. Um, We just want to, we, we want to act like we don't see it or it becomes like we, we, we package it differently. We put it in different buckets as it relates to, we could easily go um, to, you know, um, a developing country and, you know, and, and lend and build and build wells and make sure people have clean sanitary water. But when we can't do that Mm. in our own country, which I think we should do it in both places because we have the resources to do it in both places. Um, you know, there's a disconnect that we have and, Mm. um, you know, you, and so I want to know, like, um, in this, and, and someone was saying that even if you don't give someone, um, if you don't have the resources to give, at least when someone is houseless, to be able to look them in the eye and at least wave or to smile or to um, make sure that they know that they are seen. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and even some of us, we know um, as an African-American in certain spaces, we know what it feels like sometimes to feel like people are looking right through you or to feel invisible, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's not a good feeling, you know? No. And that causes a lot of animosity. What would you say, um, you know, about the work that you're doing? What is something that you wish that... Um, you know, that the community knew that when I say the community, I'm talking about, um, and I'm not just saying people um, of faith. I'm just talking about what do you wish the world knew about the community that you're working with? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, so to your point, a, a, a large part of my uh, dissertation research had to do with like the origins of uh, the history of homelessness in this country, um, the two mass homelessness eras, uh, how homelessness itself went from a communal concern to a criminal issue, uh, the five periods of homelessness, and how uh, we went from uh, having alms houses, uh, alms houses and poor houses, and opening up uh, police stations and hospitals to take in people to. Uh, the chronic homelessness era when we started to view 
uh, people who are unhoused uh, in a way that has a lot of disdain and, uh, you know, uh, wanting to publicly sanitize people from the, the public uh, view. And that's rooted in policy. It's rooted in social and political rhetoric. It's rooted in all of that, right? But when I was doing my research, I lived on the streets of Tennessee, yeah. uh, the state of Tennessee, uh, which became the first state in the U.S. that makes uh, homelessness a felony. Literally, you can be fined a classy felony for sleeping outside in the tent. And it's punishable up to six years in prison, loss of voter rights, uh, a loss of a lot of access to things. And when I was interviewing people, uh, because I wanted to understand the connection between public policy and how it impacts a person's worth in real time who is actually living on the streets. A lot of them, uh, uh, persons that I interviewed, felt uh, shameful when they walked into a restaurant and they were turned away. Shameful when people would walk across the street uh, overlooking their humanity, not realizing that they're a brother or a son or a daughter or a uncle or a father or a grandmother. Um, shameful when they not only have to ra- wrestle with not having an address, which is the definition of homelessness, but not having a home. Mm. And what I define home as in the book, I see you as a place where you feel seen, where you belong and where you feel accepted. Um, I know as a black man what it uh, feels like to have your life edited and handed back to you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be a shell of a person. Uh, but I also use that pain that I've gone through uh, to empathize with those who live every single day yeah. on the streets and we don't know their stories. Mm-hmm. There's power in story because story allows you to understand a perspective that is not your own. Story allows you to understand a person's journey into the plight. And story also gives us the ability to see people and affirm their human worth and value. And that is the essence of what we're talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. it's power in seeing someone. It's power in acknowledgement. It's power in affirming someone's inherent worth and value in a way that makes them feel visible. I say often to uh, groups that I talk to, one of the threats to belonging is distance. Mm. And we've got to get back to a place where we are more proximate to people and we practice this idea of presence uh, where they can be, uh, uh, where they can feel included. Yeah. I want you to repeat, um, just in case someone missed that, you, I know you've done, you've marched, uh, I mean, walked, I think you walked from Atlanta to DC, you know, yeah. like really bringing attention to this. Like you put some miles on, we'll talk about how many miles you've, you've covered <laughs> trying to bring attention to this. But I do remember when you were um, sleeping out on the street, I didn't know that that was about research um, or the context of that, but I want you to repeat um, in the state of Tennessee, Um, the policy. And then I'm just, I I want us to, those of you who are listening, I want you to think about the ramifications of that and how does anyone um, overcome that type of policy? It's like, we're causing more issues, um, you know, with the type of policies that we have. We're, we're, we're causing extreme poverty. We're, um, we're we're causing jails to be um, overran. It's like our answer to um, some of the social issues of today is to lock people up. 
Mm. Where is the grace and mercy of God in that? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I was deciding what I would focus my dissertation on, uh, my concentration is public policy. And so I was tasked with uh, picking a policy problem. Mm-hmm. And it was in uh, 2022 when I started hearing the rumblings of this bill that was about to be passed that makes camping outside on uh, public property a class E felony. And the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, where are people who are unhoused going to go? Because if all you have is outside, the only place you can go is outside. And then I started to do research and understood that there was fewer beds in the state than there were unhoused uh, persons in the state. And so I started to wonder, like, so the, the answer to the question or the problem is to create a bill uh, that makes it harder for people who are unhoused to exist rather than creating more beds and access uh, to uh, health care and to uh, mental health uh, uh, resources and to be able to sleep. Uh, 70% of persons who are unhoused right now don't know where uh, or to find somewhere safe to sleep. And so like when I was over there living on the streets and I shot a documentary for my dissertation called Homesick, I'm interviewing uh, people who are living on the streets with a disability. Mm-hmm. People who have, you know, uh, or have lost some of their limbs who would talk about the shelters being uh, overfilled and not even being designed in a way that has ADA accommodations. I would talk to women who were afraid for their lives uh, because they were f- in fearful of something being done to their bodies. Uh, but there was fewer resources for women and children. Like this is out of the p- the person's mouths that I was encountering. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we do research, we only look at numbers right. and we never ask how does this impact someone on the other side in real time? And so when you talk about policies, uh, we only look at them uh, through the lens of those who are writing. But Deborah, Deborah Stone in her book, Policy Paradox, she says every single policy has a, a narrative. Mm-hmm. It's communicating a hero and a villain. It's yeah. communicating a problem and a solution. And we have to be critical in the way that we unpack and understand the historical shaping of policy, the historical targeting of policy, so we can understand who is telling the narrative and how they are being told. Mm, So good. So good, Terrence. um, I'm thinking I have a friend who works with um, an organization here called Mercy Care, who provides, um, you know, mental health treatment, medical assistance to um, those that not just if they're houseless, but those who are having a hard time, um, you know, getting those uh, medical services. And mm-hmm. one of the things, one of her, she was telling me about a situation that just really gripped her heart. Um, it was a young father who had um, just had been out of jail for a while. He was trying to find a job. Um, he had to get custody of his children because um, I think the mom may have been incarcerated, but she could never, couldn't provide. And so he's trying to get a job and he came into her, um, office weeping because him and his mm. children had been sleeping in a car. Um, and 
you know, like he was trying to get resources. But then when you pull the cover back on why he was in the situation um, that he was in, you know, he's um, someone who had dealt um, with mental health issues um, since he was a child. Mm. Um, He came from a very fractured, abusive um, home. He was a product of the system, um, of the foster care system. And, you know, and here the thing that he's trying to keep from happening is his children not going into the system. Mm. He's trying to fight, you know, that his children would not go into the system, but could not get a hand up, you know. Generational. Yes, generational. And I mean, we could have probably pulled that layer back even more, but this is a person who wants to do the right thing. Yes. You know, they don't want to, he didn't want to go back into doing um, illegal things. He said the only reason why he was doing illegal things is because he was trying to prevent this from happening. And Mm. so when you think about these cycles that we create, you know, um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, just Matthew 25. Um, you know, and when we, in, in, would we turn that person away before Jesus, you know, without any resources or help? She was able to provide some, some help, um, for him in his situation, but I just never forgot that, um, that story because you, you, you know, sometimes we see different things. We don't know anyone's story that we see on the, on the street. And sometimes we can right. get one narrative and apply that a narrative to everyone, but none of the people that we see that are houseless are a monolith. You know, they oh, yeah. have different stories. Yeah. Narrative is powerful. Um, uh, sociologist uh, Teresa Gowan in her book, um, Hobos, Hustlers and Backsliders, she's talking about uh, there are three uh, socially constructed narratives about those who are poor. It's sin talk, sick talk, and system talk, mm. right? And she says... That, uh, you know, uh, the sin talk derives from uh, uh, Martin Luther, uh, who was a reformer Mm. who had who made his argument that poverty itself was somehow connected to sin. And that kind of crept in uh, to the Western world where we view those who are um, impoverished as not having moral ethic or not having any character or being lazy. And so like this type of framing, uh, her, she says her response, our response to that is punishment is exclusionment. Mm-hmm. And then there's a uh, sick talk, this idea that people are where they are because maybe they're unwell, right. Or maybe something is going on with them and they're not able to function. And, uh, you know, we try to solve that with few resources. And then the last uh, category is system talk, which uh, deals with uh, there's something systemic that has caused a person or community to be in this uh, particular context. Um, but she says the, the number one thing that people believe is the sin talk category. Yeah. And what I was arguing uh, with uh, Gowan in, in my research is that we need a worth talk model. Mm. Um, that we need to talk about a person's inherent worth and value um, because that would, uh, you know, cause us to see them as being worthy to be included no matter the social location they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And that creates this reframing of language, reframing of narrative, getting to know people's stories beyond the socially constructed ideas, right? 
You know, I've worked with people who have business degrees who fell on hard times and became unhoused. People who uh, could no longer afford their mortgage because, um, you know, the property value or their rent because the property value went up in the area and uh, the landlord doubled their uh, rent. Uh, I've had people, uh, you know, have uh, a major illness happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just saw these types of things in COVID. Uh, My wife and I lost uh, her her brother-in-law to COVID and cause a one uh, a one parent household to have to suffer through that. And we've just seen the different stories. And so we always got to be cautious about how we've allowed other people who create the, create these types of frames uh, to allow us to adopt these, how we adopt these frames and start to see other people because that could seep into our hearts and we can be move, move further away from Matthew 25. Yeah. You move further away from what Jesus is saying. I came to preach good news to yeah. the poor, you know, to mend the brokenhearted, to show up with proximity, to to ensure that those who are weary feel my compassion. If we're yeah. truly following Jesus, I think we've got to challenge those narratives. We got to ask ourselves how do we come to these ideas without having the proper research. But we also need to um, posture our hearts in a way that God can move us to be like Jesus in Matthew 25. Be like Jesus and be like Jesus and be like Jesus and Matthew 25. Be like Jesus and Matthew 25. Be like Jesus and Matthew 25. Be like If you've been enjoying and learning from the Be the Bridge podcast, we invite you to join us in this work. You can support and sustain our mission as a recurring partner at be the bridge.com forward slash give. You can also help spread this word of bridge building by supporting and really sporting our apparel. So if you haven't gotten your Be The Bridge hat, sweatshirt, all of the things, let's take the message to the street. Visit our online store at shop.bethebridge.com and make sure we're spreading the word about all the work that Be The Bridge is doing and will do. At Be The Bridge, we're doing the work to empower people and culture toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation. And this work is only possible because of the generosity of bridge builders like you. So thank you so much for those of you who are listening and sharing our podcast, sharing our posts, those of you who are giving to this work um, that's helping us create resources and material um, that will transform hearts. Um, So join us at bethebridge.com forward slash give and let's continue to build bridges together. Thank you so much. You know, we know that there's a major uh, theological problem that we have, um, you know, as the um, body of Christ, you know, um, that allows us to um, get here where we are now, where we would think that um, poverty and um, sickness equates to criminality. Mm. Um, and so I think that's something that we um, we really have to examine where that is coming from, because it's not coming from scripture. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've been reading is the Gospels, like just going through the Gospels, because I, I just want to be familiar 
with yes. what Jesus did, what Jesus said, how Jesus moved, who Jesus inter- interacted with. So yes. that when you get some of these other frameworks, um, you know that that's counter to what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And I mm. just, um, you know, challenge um, any of you who are listening now to go back and familiarize yourself with um, the red letters, you know, with the red um, letters, yes, to read the red letters, you know, um, to to read the words of Jesus, to read the gospels, and reacquaint yourself with that. Um, I, I, you know, I I wanted uh, also to talk about you have a um, a new book um, coming out. Um, you have um, when we. I love the book uh, "When We Stand: The Power of Seeking Justice um, Together." That's another one that you, that everyone you should t- um, you should check check out. Um, but then this new book that you have, "All God's Children," and I, this is where I wanted us to spend a little time in too. Okay. And it, you said um, how confronting buried history um, can build racial solidarity. So we're in a we're in a place now where. Um, if when we talk about um, our history, if we're talking about the history of our family, if we're mm. talking about our history of relationships, there's no place in our history of our family or our relationships that we would want um, that removed, erased. You know, so yeah. you know, um, if you know, and even even some of the bad history, we know if we don't talk about it, it's going to cause problems in our relationship. You know, just thinking about yeah. um, if you're married and there was a, um, a a situation that happened, or if you're if you're your spouse had had an uh, um, abusive um, situation growing up, that abuse um, is going to impact your relationship. It's going to impact your children, your Mm. friends, all of that. If it's not dealt with, if it's something that um, you're not, um, you know, totally removing because of shame or, or or whatever, we know that that's going to impact you. Um, The same way when we talk about our history um, as a country, um, trying to change the narrative or erasing it or saying that because it makes one group feel bad, then we shouldn't talk about it. I mean, even to say that with our mouth, it's it's like ridiculous. Like we're going to look back on this hopefully next year, <laughs> but 20 years or 30 years from now, because when we, look, we think back to some of the crazy things and policies that we've had in the past, when we yeah. read those 50 years later or 30 years later, we're like, what? In the world, especially we, we we read about eugenics and um, you know all the things like how could you think I was not human <laughs> and I'm living and breathing and talking and speaking but I'm not human I'm three fifths of a person like no. um, the, the uh, audacity of that I think we're gonna um, have that same feeling I hope it happens next year but you <laughs> <Me> know <too. laughs> but um, but it, if not to to think and to say. That um, you know, you know, well, that hit some history deserves to be elevated and mm. magnified and and talked about when it brings um, harm, you know, to lots of group, groups of people. Um, and then some history needs to be erased, and we're going to change the whole entire story with a straight face. I, I was just looking at a video <laughs> the other, right this week where the guy, a guy who was not even an African-American, was trying to tell an African-American about our history, trying to say, <laughs> you, know, you received all your rights after the Civil War. And, and we're like, okay, so no. we probably not 
an entire museum, <laughs> the Smithsonian, that contradicts that. We have history books that contradicts that. We have parents. <laughs> in parents. Our, um, our, my life personally contradicts that. Um, and so, um, you know, you know, to tell someone that with a straight face and say, this is facts, we have ingested some simple mess. And um, a lot of yes. these are so-called Christians. Um, and I say so-called, and I and I am going to stand by that because um, I'm not seeing the fruit of what we, what um, the the life of, of, that I, I feel that Christianity should produce. Like there's some bad fruit that's being produced, you know? Um, mm. And so in your book, you start chapter one off with questions um, from your son. Um, he was nine years old at the time. You, you asked him this question in 2020. He said, dad, why are there tanks on the TV? And why did a man have his knee um, on the neck of the other man? Uh, which led you to have a talk with your son. Um, your book titled All God's Children, um, you begin the book with words and observations of a child because our children are walk watching. We're having to um, interpret the world that they're seeing. We're having to interpret the things that are happening um, all across this country with our, with our children. Yeah. Um, you openly share some of your wisdom and passed along to your son during that conversation. Why did you give, um, why did you, why do you feel like that's important for readers to take a glimpse into that, um, to you talking with your son? And I think this is important because I know um, Tadahisi Coates did um, this with his um with his son and his his book, um, I cannot think of the name of the book right now. It just completely yeah. um, uh, slipped my mind. But he did this um, to his book, and I think about this. Not I don't even have children, but I value um, this next generation and our youth so much that the things mm. that I do, it's like I'm, I want to create space and growth um, for um, this generation. Um, why did you start um, the, the book off with that sacred story? Because I know that was very personal to you. Yeah. Um, I feel the emotions in my body mm. as you were describing that. Mm. And let me tell you why, Latasha. Um, I still remember smelling the breakfast my grandmother was making mm. when I was over her house at the age of 10. I remember sitting down across uh, from my grandfather who was uh, starting to eat his breakfast and he looks at me and for the first time out of the blue, he says, this world is going to be hard. You will be mistreated. You will be excluded. And all of this will be because of the color of your skin. Out of the blue, over breakfast. Um, but he goes on to say that, you know, your family will always be your su support system. Hearing those words was like drinking from a fire hose because it was my first contact and realization that I was a black boy that one day will become a black man. And I remember my brain not fully comprehending. I now know that uh, research shows that black children will have an adult view 
of racial social constructs Mm -hmm. as early as age 10. Mm -hmm. And for generations, the talk itself has been like a mainstay in Black families. Uh, At some point, Black children will all get these warnings, right, from our elders about how to avoid, how to survive the world we live in and police encounters. And so these talks continued from like my uncles and football coaches and basketball coaches and black teachers and my black mother. I remember having uh, the talk with my mom, who was a single parent, uh, raising two children uh, that were black, uh, you know, a son and a daughter. And she would just say these things as I was getting older, you know, always keep your hands out of your pocket if you walk into a store or if you don't have money, don't walk into a store. Or if people are watching you shop, pull out your money out of your pocket and make it visible. Or when you start to drive, keep your hands at 10 and 2 and don't wear baggy clothes and keep your hair cut low. I mean, all of these uh, types of uh, equipment. Uh, I would call it, or tools that I needed as a young black boy who was going to be a black man to survive. And man, now it's my turn, Latasha, to Mm. give the talk. And I wasn't expecting it because my son still has innocence. Mm -hmm. And he walks into the room and he sees a tank on the television that is different from the tanks that he plays with in this room. And he asked me, what in the world has happened? And not only do we have COVID, but we have the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Amar Arbery, Breonna Taylor. And I'm having to have this conversation with my son. And I think this is critical because um, I had to talk to my son about this. And he's nine at the time. And many black families were having these talks with their children but also had to go beyond the talk to speak to his his worth and his value and his existence and our family and um, you know speaking to the fact that there are ideators and intellectuals and scholars and investors and all type of dreamers uh, that come from uh, you know our black community and I started that the book off like that because I want to I want people to know that. You're giving some type of talk if you're white um, and if you're reading the words and, and yeah. you're, you're white, you're giving some type of talk either verbally or non-verbally, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that we treat people of color, the way that we uh, you know, talk about those who are black and brown, uh, the way that we support people who talk different about these types of communities and um, I wanted to center the talk because at some point we all have to talk to our children and give an account for how we are actually showing up in the world. And it is sacred because, you know, one day when my son gets older, if he decides to have children, he's going to have this. And I wanted to write this in a very personal way so my children will be able to reflect back on the value that I taught them that they had. Yeah. I know, I think, um, and it makes it so personal. Um, Personal stories are really key because you want to give people context and you want to tie it home. And then you also want people to think about, um, you know, 
I love my children. We love our children just like you yeah. love your children. We want the best for our children just like you want the best for your children. Your grandfather loved you just like their grandfather loved them. You yes. know, and and how your grandfather communicated with you was he was preparing you. He was trying to mm. he was trying to shape you. And I and I think um I, like my grandparents were major in my life also. My father, my mom, you know, they you know have 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 poured a lot of wisdom into us. Um, a lot of what our when we think about our history, when we think about um, even biblical history. It's yes. centered around remembrance, you know? Yes. Um, that's important. I mean, uh, we're just coming out of Resurrection Sunday. So we, mm. You can call it Easter Sunday. We have the good, um, the Holy Week, you know, yeah. where you had, um, you know, um, um, Good Friday. We had um, Ash Wednesday, yeah, Ash yeah. Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, like all, yeah. all the, all the things, you know. And for some in other faiths, you had Passover and Ramadan, like all these things. But it's all about remembrance, you know. Yes. Um, and when we go when we look at the Book of Deuteronomy, we see the importance and the value of that. We see that through Scripture of the of the placing of the twelve stones, the making of the Ten Commandments, like all these things our faith is built upon remembrance and Mm. um you talk about um your grandfather and you say your grandfather said remember where you come from um and and this is how you survive it's important to hear the stories of the generation before because we aren't far removed um from segregate segregation and so remembrance is such an important um, task for us to, to know, um, um, you know, and we see that in certain cases now that, um, remembrance is being attacked as it relates to certain things, you know? Yes. Um, yes. so, you know, and as people of faith, if anything, we should get that, like the value of remembrance, whether it would be, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, that um, Israel was called to remember that were harsh, their, their disobedience, you know? Mm. Um, you know, tragedy, um, you know, um, but then also things where they, they, they went through difficult times to see. So the glory of God could be shown doing that, you know, you think about the, I'm first thinking about the, the escape out of um, Egypt, you know, and so many other things that we, this given account, you know, the word of God is a book of remembrance. It is. And so when you see this happening now and you say the buried history can um, build racial solidarity, how do you see this impacting us um, for generations to come if this is the change of narrative, if this, if, if this is the mindset of some, which I do not believe this is the mindset of many. I believe right. that this is a mindset of some that are very loud, but I do not feel like the majority of people um, feel this way. And if they do, as a Christian, what would you say to them about um, the uh, that confronting buried history is a necessity um, to our growth? Yeah, and our healing. Wow, I, there, there's so much there. I. You know, I remember having, I, I include a lot of stories in the book uh, with yeah. conversations from my grandparents because, uh, yeah. you know, in the, the Black tradition, yeah. um, oral 
oral tradition of yeah. passing on of stories uh, kind of shapes us and gives us context uh, from where we come from. There's even a, a bird that is called a Sankofa bird with yeah. the body facing forward and the head turned backwards yeah. to symbolize that we are forever moving forward, but we can't forget where we, we've come from. And I think um, uncovering buried history or confronting the history that is trying to be erased keeps us from being ignorant. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, violence and harm done out of ignorance. Uh, one of my f- uh, friends and colleagues, Dr. Kevin Cosby, says there is willful full ignorance and woeful ignorance. Mm. Willful ignorance is when you willingly are just stubborn and you want to stay out of the out of the light, right? Where you don't want to um, encounter the truth. And woeful ignorance is just when you are unaware. And I think what we are starting to see in society and culture is more willful ignorance, where people want to stay in the dark. They don't want to understand how uh, history is causing some of the residue of what we're seeing in society and culture today and how horrible it feels to have your history erased uh, from the school, uh, uh, removal of books, and uh, being told that you know our history cannot be included. When I still have living grandparents, uh, three of my grandparents are still alive. Who are uh, my grandmother is about to turn ninety-one on tomorrow, and my grandfather uh, is eighty-six, who still can drive around and tell me stories of yeah yeah uh, of 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 what has occurred in history Mm -hmm. and me knowing that helps me to be a better person and understand where i come from but others who are not a part of the black community helps to see the humanity the struggle um and also uh uncover some of the past horrible things that have been done so they are not repeated because when we are not knowledgeable about things that have come these things pass through generations in the heart of people yes Mm -hmm. that's the difference between de jure discrimination by law Mm -hmm. um, and de facto by fact or what we have adopted in our hearts and like you say latasha we need to cleanse our hearts and we need to be mindful of the things that have happened so we know what ways not to travel again. Isn't that what we see in scripture? Yeah. Isn't that the stones of remembrance? Yes. Yeah. Isn't this do this in remembrance of me? Of me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so much of what we do on Sunday is all about that communion, um, you know, uh, Christmas, all, all of that. We we know that, um, but we, we kind of like, we kind of we're segregating um, out um, what is valuable and what is not valuable, you know, mm. and it's and it's just a repeat of, you know, kind of like the foundation of what segregation is like, yeah. you know, really um, um, not seeing people like, you know, discriminating against a group of people because we wouldn't mm. do that in any other way. And when we talk about some of the things when we say um, removing 
um, some of the negative things that we say as it relates to our American history. No one is causing for some of those things to be burnt, but we're saying, hey, they have a place, but in a museum, not on state houses, you know, not in state parks, not right, you know, right. because that, that memory is not a glorified memory. And then when we were, um, you know, my grandfather just celebrated his 91st birthday actually this past oh, week. Wow. And so uh, my grandparents are around the same age. And so when we, um, when I think about some of the erasure, I'm like, you're erasing my grandfather who is still here. Who is still you're, here. Yes, you're er erasing his story. You know, mm. his, you know, his survival, his thriving, like, you know, and, and that's, it's like you're doing a disservice to him again when he's had to live in such discrimination and segregation and Jim Crow and so many things. You know, our grandparents were born during the Great Depression, you know, yes. and, and if you think the Great Depression was, was, was bad for white people, <laughs> <laughs> imagine what it was like, um, you know, for um, um, African-Americans and, 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 you know, and um, BIPOC people in this country um, with the, you know, the social um, ills that we had um, happening. So I think um, that's important. I was and it just struck me because I, I, I follow Ruby Bridges on. Um, oh, yeah. On Instagram, and she had posted. Um, I think Converse had given her some some um, Converse red Converse with her, her a, a picture of her when she was six years old. Wow. Um, Ruby Bridges is a, a, a few years younger than my mom. Wow, she's I think she's sixty eight or sixty nine. My mom just turned seventy. Um, she's you know in her late sixties. Like some of you listening, this is like this is you're in that age range. And here we are banning books with her story, banning videos of her story, you know, um, just in, in real time, <laughs> in real time. Like here she is on Instagram, using Instagram, you know, her story is alive and well with her breathing and living. And I mean, the fact that we can do that with a clear conscience, mm. you know, may God wake us up and disturb us like that's disturbing to me you know and yeah. so um and 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 I, and I hope you I want people to hear the passion and the um um of what we're saying and and feel it because like these are things that we have to use um our voice for you know yes. we can't just sit aside silent and let these things happen because the things, the people who are doing this, they are not the majority. Mm. They're not. I, I, yeah. I, I do not. Well, maybe I'm a, um, a little more, um, you know, um, optimistic to think that the majority of people do not think like this. They see the value of remembrance and, and these things have a place. Um, you, you have, um, there's a a couple things that you talk about and um you know in, in your book um you, you talk about the history of um um the modern day policing can be traced back to um the the slave patrol and um you know can you talk a little bit more about why uncovering that historical thread um is necessary and I and I I do this a lot it's like I like to 
um, talk about this historical context, you know, in relation to my personal story, but mm. also for people to get the context of what's happening now, because history yeah. is understand the present. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about that as we um, get ready to gear up to close out? Yeah, yeah, for I sure. You all day long. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, just a shortened version of it is. I remember Dr. Mark Lamont Hill made this social media post and he says, how old were you when you had a gun pulled on you? Mm. And Mm. all of these black men uh, commented on this post. I mean, some 10 years old, 12 years old, eight years old. And all of these men were black men who were recounting uh, their interactions with police officers. Mm. I, I was 12. Right. And, you know, when you think about policing uh, out of the context of this historical thing that transpired, uh, you know, to keep in line those who are enslaved, then you don't understand the black community's trauma or collective trauma when we see a black body uh, being murdered or taken on television. It's not just something that impacts me uh, individually. We have this collective impact. Uh, as Dr. Joy LaGrue would say in her book, uh, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, she's talking about all of these historical things that have transpired that continues to impact uh, like public policies like the war on drugs or uh, you know, Jim Crowism or Black Codes or some of these unique situations that targets black and brown communities in ways uh, that were really set up to use uh, policing as a way to keep or instill fear in those uh, persons who are black and brown. And so, you know, when I think about understanding the context, you know, for someone who may not have that type of history or haven't been passed along that information, when you see it through that lens, you understand what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King says uh, when the people, you know, um, protest or, you know, um, you know, uh, rioting is the cries of the people who are unheard. Right. Mm-hmm. You understand that a little better when you see someone who is black or brown crying or lamenting publicly, even if they're a person of faith, when they mm-hmm. see someone who looks like them have their life taken. And so. That's why it's important. That's why it's, you know, not to just see it happening in real time, but have the historical understanding of, of why this is still causing so much pain and trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, and I think the context is just really important. And so that people can understand um, the agendas um, that ha- have arrived Um you know, and mm. a lot of times because we're not taught these things in school, uh, we do a lot of trainings with Be The Bridge. We um, go into corporations, churches, nonprofit organizations, and we do, um, you know, racial literacy training, um, in-depth mm. training. And a part of a large part of our training is that of history and, um, you know, and factual history, you know, yes. um, where you're not just getting one side, but you're getting the full narrative, you know, um, mm. of, of, of this, these historical things. And so, um, you know, there's people that don't even understand redlining or they don't understand, mm. um, you know, um, Jim Crow or segregation, especially if you've come into our country, you know, post, um, 
you know, 1968, due to the um, immigration laws, um, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, and you don't know the history prior to you coming and you're not learning it in um in school, so you can kind of take on the um, persona or the um, uh, of the what you would say the majority culture um, yeah. in our country um, with with this um, with this ignorance, not really understanding. And I never forget um, some friends of mine. There, one is from Guatemala, and one is from um, El Salvador, and they saw the movie Selma and could not understand. They could not believe that that happened in the United States. Wow. They could not believe that that happened. And them understanding that majority of the people that were involved in the civil rights movement, that was the, which I I would say was a revival, you know, that was happening. It was a revival that was missed by the white church. Um, Mm. And and so, you know, they would see, um, you know, they're seeing, you know, Martin Luther King go down and they're, they're praying. And if you ever hear the story from, you know, Andrew Young and, you know, just how God, they were being led um, by the spirit of God. And like in a lot of those moments, they didn't know what to do, but pray, you know? Um, mm. And, you know, and so when seeing that and they could not believe that this is happening, this is just with one movie, you know? Um, but as I begin to tell different stories to them, um, it was just, you, you know, they didn't have the context. And that's why it's important because if we didn't, if we told our full story, if this is something that we taught, just like in Germany, as it relates to the Holocaust, they tell their full story um, yes. because that's where healing begins. Like yes. we understand that truth makes us free. It sets us free. And yes. so we, if we don't tell the truth, we are in bondage, you know, yes. we are in sin, you know, as a country. And that's why we are dealing with some of the things we're dealing with in America. And there's other countries that are, you know, leaning into the truth, at least telling the truth of some of their history as it relates to their indigenous um, community. And so I really, you know, I, 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 I really want, um, you know, we want to create pathways and understand for people to understand the historical facts so they can make, first of all, number one, so they won't be ignorant because so many times people say, you know, I never knew this. If only I had known. I had an 86 year old woman come up to me and say, Mm. I had no idea. Because we were living in homogenous bubbles. And so yes, all of yes. this history was happening and it was kept from you because we didn't have social media. You know, there wasn't the internet, you know, when a lot of people were um, were growing up. But I think today's generation, they want to know. They want to understand how did we arrive here? Yeah, And as we say, history has the receipts. And so we <laughs> try to change and right. receipts but there's too many factual receipts to try to lie about it, you right. know. Um, and you talk about this. You just did a Substack, um, and it, you talk about covering up history and removing books. Information from classrooms will result in ignorance, continued injustice, um, and that mm. is so true. It will result in continued injustice. It mm. will prevent um, racial healing. Yes. It will prevent. Um, reconciliation. It will prevent equity. It will prevent redemption. It will prevent restoration. 
And those are all biblical things that we should want to see and experience. Um, and you talk about um, sharing the mystery. It will, you know, it will result also in mistreatment mm-hmm. and it will only share one-sided history. And when you only share one-sided history and you're sharing that one-sided history from the dominant group, which in our country, um, the majority group in, in our country, um, are those that um, under our racial category is considered white. When we only do that, we're setting up this uh, underlining supremacy that mm. some history is more important and better than others. And we understand this as Christians, that the only supremacy that we should be honoring and promoting is God's supremacy. And so, um, you know, what encouragement do you have for our bridge builders who are working to make sure? And, you know, some of some of us are out here and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know where to start. They are overcome. Some people are ignoring it. Um, Some Mm -hmm. people feel like we just got to keep teaching the gospel. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and I'm like, (laughs) well, first of all. (laughs) <laughs> and let's look at Matthew 25. This is a part of the gospel. Um, right, right. You know, it's not an, an addendum, you know. Um, yeah. We just keep preaching love. And I was like, okay, I think that's what they were, um, they've been doing <laughs> for, for centuries now. Um, right. That's what you know. right. Uh, what right. would you say to those who are working to make sure that covering up our history and banning the books doesn't continue yeah. to happen? Yeah. What, what encouragement do you have? Yeah. Um, Latasha, I read this quote. I want to read it because it's so powerful. The other day it says, if you want to be someone's ally, but haven't been hit by the stones being thrown at them, Mm. you are not standing close enough yet. Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, to be an encourager to people, I mean, I would just start with lament, Mm, you know, who are you lamenting with? Mm. Mm. Who are you uh, listening to and crying out with, yes, right? Yes. Um, you know, lamentation is a, a part of what it means to be human yeah. and journey uh, through life with God. You know, the, the New Testament even contains powerful imagery of what it means to stand with mm-hmm. people who are suffering, you know, who, and then from lamenting, who, who are you listening to, right? Mm-hmm. If you're uh, seeking to you know, be the bridge. Who are you listening to? I mean, this is littered throughout scripture that it's good to have two ears to listen before you speak, right? Uh, the book of James. Um, who are you learning from? Mm. You know, not saying that you have to, um, you know, uh, you know, drink from a fire hose, but start small. Like you could start with one piece of history, one small tidbit, one uh, factual statement. And then just sit with it and unpack it and allow it to interrogate your historical shaping. Um, You know, from there, who are you immersing yourself around, um, Mm -hmm. entering into the world of another? Who are you showing compassion or empathy to? Who are you standing alongside um, in the struggle for liberation and freedom? And how are you using your voice? I would, you know, lift up all of these things, which I, you know, go over in my book. Um, all God's children is what I call the solidarity framework, mm-hmm. uh, which is highly biblical, right? 
And, um, you know, it gives us a chance to not just see the things that people have endured, Mm -hmm. but gives us a close connection to people where we can be in community with people, where we can feel, actually feel uh, tangibly what people have endured and what they are enduring. And then God can reveal to us, how do we serve? Because ain't that what Jesus say? If you want to be great, (laughs) you got to what? What you got to do? You already got to serve, but you got to get proximate to be able to uh, serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So good. That's a good word. I, I, um, what are some things that, you know, I, you know, I I can see, you know, this is one of the things just, just from, um, you know, your substat, like this is one of the things that we're both like lamenting right now is just, yeah erasure um Mm. you know and the the erasure i think for me um when we start looking at it from um uh partisan or political lens it's like there's you you understand that but when it starts coming and being supported by people from the church that that stabs me um, oh yeah like a it's like a betrayal like you know yes um, and so, um, especially, you know, just like as your book says, like when we're, we're all God's children, you know, mm, all um, God's children, you know, and just that, that concept, like if we could get a revelation of that, of, mm. of, of our, uh, of our humanity together, our dignity and worth together that, you know, um, that we together, um, reflect the totality of who God is, not just one group of people. Yes. No. Yes. Um, and so I, I, I pray that you, those listening now, that 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 becomes a reality for you, that it becomes a revelation um, mm. for 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 those that are listening. Um, I think, um, you know, what is something that's bringing you hope right now? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, being able to have honest conversations. Um. I don't I don't want people to miss the fact that you said you felt betrayed mm. out loud. Yeah. To your brother in Christ, right? Yeah. Um yeah. being able to find unique and safe spaces to say the things that you know, we kind of hold in our hearts and uh you know, we're not able to really express. I think that is mm. healing. Yeah. You know, there, you know, when I'm able to talk about some of these personal stories in this book or talk about frustrations like seeing uh, libraries or, you know, uh, Dr. Bernice King talking about her father's speeches yeah. in some schools in Texas or books can't even be read, you know, mm-hmm. things that was born of the spirit. Like, I grieve that and I need to be able to say that. Yeah, I need to be able to say that I have a dream speech has inspired me and is still inspiring people all across the globe to think about the beloved community and the uh, the world house. I need to be able to uh, think about how King followed a Palestinian Jew named Jesus who uh, preached the good news uh, to the poor and those who were oppressed. Him being himself under oppression, under Ro- Roman rule, being yeah. a minority and being poor, right? And yeah. so, like, I need to reflect on some of those things and to be able to communicate those to you and in other safe environments is really healing to me. Mm. You know, I, I from this conversation, I feel so lifted 
and I, you know, I would encourage people to just say the things, um, because you, you can't start the healing process if you're remaining quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's I think Brenda Salterman Neal, she says, you know, um, can we just call a thing a thing? You know? <laughs> call a thing a thing. Yes. Yes. Say stop falling for the okie dokie. Like the okie dokie. Okie dokie. Long enough when we look at the historical receipts, seeing the church on the wrong side of history. Like when when are we gonna make it right? You know. Um, but I do know this, and like like you said, like I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful having conversations um, with you, seeing everything that you have been through. And seeing God's hands and mercy upon your life, you know, um, mm. and, and and all of this, and and God has this way of of showing His glory um, through oppression, like you know that mm. like, mm. if we if we look, it's it's a fact, you know that that we watch God move and work. Through what the world does to to silence, to shut down, to change the narrative, to do all of those things, God is going to build up. He's going to innovate. He's going to create. He's going to restore. He's going to redeem. And all of these things are going to happen. And God's glory will be shown through all of his people. You know, and so I think this is what I want to reframe this and say we have an opportunity here um, to demonstrate the glory of God and what's happening right now. And so um, we, we're, we're seeing it where things people mean for evil. Yes. We're seeing that the spotlight is put on new voices, mm. you know, young voices yes. that are, are um, that you can tell are filled with with God and his hand is with them. And so the things that I, I see the world trying to do to silence and to shut down, um, I believe that those are going to be opportunities for us. So let's look for the opportunities. Look mm. for the opportunities. Do what you've been called to do. Um, say the things you've been called to say and keep working, keep grinding because we are doing good work. And as um, John Lewis would say, this is good trouble to be in. <laughs> yeah, good trouble, good trouble. Yes. Good trouble. And I, I, I love what you're doing, brother. I'm so proud of you, um, you know, um, continuously praying for your healing. I know you were in a major um, car accident um, not too long ago in the midst of all of this is happening. You know, you had to, you know, you guys are hearing him. Um, but, you know, this man in the midst of this had to learn to walk again. And at the same time, still get his doctor, his PhD. <laughs> now you gonna yeah. tell me God is not good. God. Um, yeah. and so that's what, you know, and I'm, I'm like, you know, um, yeah. So I, I, I'm thinking about some of these um, Pentecostal prayers where they say, you know, uh, like, you know, like, touch not my anointing and do my prophet no harm, you know? Mm. And I, I think about that as it relates to some of us who are called into this prophetic space to mm. bring attention um, to those that are have been considered less than in our society, those that are on the fringes, those that are in the margins. And mm. um, and may God be glorified um, in the in the midst of this. I, I there's this Zulu saying, um, Terrence um, Sabonia, um, that means um, I see you, we see you, 
Um, mm. The collective sees you. And so instead of saying, hello, how are you doing? Um, in South Africa, this Zulu saying, they say Sabonia. 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 So meaning that um, we see you. I see mm-hmm. you. I see the work that God has called you into and the work that you're doing. And then um, there's this response um, that um, in Zulu that they say, um, which is um, Sikonya, Sikonya. And I may be pronouncing it wrong, but y'all hear it. Catch it in the spirit. <laughs> it also means that um, then I am here. Mm. And that this is a way to restore worth and dignity to a person that not only just saying hello, it goes deeper than that. When we say, I see you, it's saying that um, that we see the dignity and the worth that you have. Mm. And, and by acknowledging that in me, then I say, I am here. I, I am, am here. here. I am here. And so mm. um, I think about that, and, you know, your first book um, that you wrote. Um, you know, um, just the title of that is an embodiment of of that. You didn't even know you were speaking Zulu, did you? I, I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know. Sabonia. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the power of this greeting, it speaks life. And we need to speak life um, into those that we are encountering and meeting. And, and it's a, a pleasure uh, to meet you. I want to meet you in person now. Yeah, uh, we got I to. Have you talk to the team. Um, you know, we got to get connected even more. So expect to hear more from me. Um, this is, this is an honor. This has made my week. Um, uh, you thank know, you. And I'm, I'm so grateful um, for your work and um, just know that Be The Bridge, our community is praying for you. Continue to pray for us. And I I want to see how we can link link arms in the future and do some good together work, um, um, you know, moving forward. So thank you Amen. so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I feel the kindred of spirit and um, I'm glad to call you my sister. Thank you for having me and thank you for your prayers and thank you for seeing me. I am here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm here. I love it. I love it. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Knatzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.